Good morning and welcome. Good to see you all here today. Uh, great to have you with us for worship this morning. If you're visiting with us today, there is a card on the Welcome Center called a Connect card, and we'd love to uh, connect with you and uh, know of your time with us and ways that we can uh, help help you and serve you. And so please uh, feel free to fill that out. If there's something we can pray for you this week, uh, we'd love to uh, do that also. Uh, this past Saturday, or just yesterday, we were supposed to have our, our living nativity. And uh, as you probably noticed, last night wasn't the best weather uh, we've had uh, in a while. So uh, we have moved the living nativity to Friday, this coming Friday. That would be Friday, December 18th, and from 6 to 8, before it was going to be from 5 to 7. Now being on a weekday, uh, we've moved it back an hour. Uh, so 6 to 8, again, every half hour. So 6, 6.30, 7, 7.30, be about a 20-minute uh, ish uh, program uh, can be walked through, uh, or you can uh, be in your vehicle as well. And so we'll look forward to Lord willing having better weather this coming week and being able to uh, celebrate uh, the birth of Jesus. There. Um, last week we told you about the harvest offering, the um, the totals from the harvest offering. We contacted those two missionaries uh, this week, and they wanted to express uh, their thanks for your generosity. They were both uh, overwhelmed with uh, the response and thankful for uh, the provision. Uh, the 20000 for the postmas takes them to about a third of the way towards their uh, goal of uh, building that, the, the building, the reception uh, building. And for the other uh, need, the Blazers, that puts them close to $20,000. Um, we, we sent fourteen to them. I should tell you, we sent fourteen to to the Blazers and twenty to the the Postumus. Uh, there were some additional monies that we were able to put towards it, and so we rounded it up to those totals. And so both of those um, ministries say thank you. Uh, the Blazers are trying to raise around fifty thousand, so now they have about twenty thousand ish, and so they're they're on their way. So we're thankful uh, for that.
was uh, Madeline McHugh. If you uh, maybe have probably seen that already, that's been out on the uh, the uh, internet uh, for a week or two now, and uh, we were just wanted to celebrate uh, by watching that together, celebrate the birth of Jesus, and be led really in worship as as we did just that. This morning, uh, we are going to continue in our, uh, our Advent series uh, together. Uh, last week, we talked about the problem that we have, right? The problem of, of sin. We talked about creation and then the corruption that entered into creation. We talked about the condemnation that resulted from the fall. And then we talked about the consolation, that, that even in the midst of this, uh, the judging, in the midst of the curses that were laid down in chapter 3, uh, we recognize that there is hope, there, that the hope was on its way. As we move through the biblical storyline from the garden, we see that sin does separate and that there is nothing we can do to make ourselves right with God again. And men have tried, haven't they? We've tried with good works. We've tried with sacrifices. We've tried with offerings. We've tried with, with obedience. And it never is enough. In fact, God gave the law, we find in the book of Exodus. And the, the law, the point of the law, was to show men that they were sinners and unable to keep God's law perfectly. There's no way we could keep the law. And it's not just the Ten Commandments we know, right? The, the law is hundreds of commandments in the Old Testament. And there's no way that man could keep the law. And that was the point. The point was to say that there's none, there are none who are righteous. There are none who are good. As we keep reading our Bible, we also find that God raised up prophets. And these prophets spoke God's word to God's people telling them of God's word and of God's law and God's will. Telling them, among other things, of the coming Redeemer, of this Deliverer, of the Messiah. Throughout the Old Testament, we find that there are numerous uh, prophecies, hundreds in fact, pointing to the first advent or the first coming of Christ. Last week, we saw one of those glimmers, right? In chapter three, verse 15 of the book of Genesis, where God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, that's the serpent's head, and you shall bruise his, that's Jesus, his heel, right? And we, we understood this to be the first gospel, this, this first indication that there was hope that was coming, that Jesus would come, the Messiah would come, and he would be victorious over sin, death, hell, and here, Satan. These prophecies, this and many others, came hundreds of years before any literal fulfillment. Sometimes we, we want immediate gratification, right? God promises something, we want to see it now, right? We want to see it yesterday. Uh, we live in an instant culture. Um, I had a professor in college say, we're the, only, we're the only generation that stands in front of the microwave and says, hurry up, right? This idea of, of instant everything is, is hard to get out of our system. And yet here in the Old Testament, we have this pro these prophecies that are hundreds of years in the making, that, 
that didn't, did not come, that these people did not see the literal fulfillment. They were trusting in God's word. They had faith without sight. They believed God's message even though they did not see it. And salvation then, as it is now, was by grace through faith in Christ. It's in what God was going to do through his son. One scholar has, has suggested that there are some 400 Old Testament prophecies that point to the coming of the Messiah, to his life and to his death, and that Christ perfectly fulfilled them all. Now, you'll be glad to know we're not going to try to go through all 400 this morning. That's not going to be uh, the, the content of our uh, time together. But in the book of Isaiah, just in the book of Isaiah, there are said to be at least 22, and we're not going to do all of those either, but 22 in the book of Isaiah alone. Now, Isaiah, we, we can know, prophesied between 739 and 686 B.C., which makes that some 700 years before Jesus would be born. And the prophet Isaiah is prophesying about the birth of Jesus, about uh, him being a descendant of, of Jesse, about him being empowered by the spirit, him being gentle to the weak, him voluntarily submitting to suffering, that, that he would restore Israel spiritually to God and physically to the land, that he would reign on David's throne, that he would make a new covenant with Israel, that he would be the light, uh, a light to the Gentiles, and that he would judge, um, he would judge in righteousness, justice, and faithfulness, among other prophecies as well. The one we would like to look at, or one of the ones we'd look, like to look at this morning, comes in chapter 7, verse 14. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me there. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, that's on page 572, 572, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. In honor of God's word, would you stand with me as we read just this one verse, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore the Lord himself will give a sign, give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This is God's word. You may be seated. Now, many of us have heard that verse uh, a time or two, I imagine. We hear it mostly around this time of year, right? mostly around the Christmas time. However, uh, we, we need to make sure we understand that there is an immediate context to what is written in chapter 7, verse 14, which when we read chapter 7, verse 14, if you know your Bible, you, you, you can probably see some things uh, there that... Uh, give you illusions of something else. Uh, but there is an actual context to the prophecy, and it is regarding Ahaz, the king of, of Judah, and his confidence that, that was in human power rather than in the Lord. He, had, he was having a, a problem of where he was placing his faith. And God had here invited uh, Ahaz to request a sign from God in order to strengthen his faith in God. But Ahaz refused the sign. And verse 14 tells us what the sign was going to be. And the sign was the birth of a son. Now, contextually, this was actually a birth of an actual son. There was going to be a literal son that was going to be born. And in chapter 8, verse 3, we find out who that son would be. And that would be Isaiah's son. So there is an actual fulfillment immediately 
in the context of what Isaiah is prophesying of the birth of a son. Ahaz, King Ahaz, forsook the Lord. He, he was trusting in, in some uh, other source. And he continued in his unbelief, which led to great consequence for the nation and the Davidic dynasty. And if you kept reading in chapter 7, verses uh, maybe 15 through the end of the chapter, you can see what, what that was going to look like uh, for Ahaz and for the nation. But here in verse 14... Uh, we also understand that there is another fulfillment of what Isaiah was saying. That Isaiah was saying something immediately, as in the birth of what turned out to be his son, but he couldn't have been only, or the, the prophecy couldn't be only about that son. So there is also a, a, an ultimate fulfillment, or what we might say is a, a final fulfillment, not seen in the son of Isaiah. So our emphasis this morning will be on the fulfillment of this sign, the, the ultimate fulfillment of this sign. And first we see that there was a sign. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. And what is the sign? The sign was that a virgin shall conceive... Right, the sign was that there would be a birth of a son from a virgin, meaning a young woman, a maiden, an unmarried, sexually pure lady. Now, as you know, a virgin uh, able to conceive would be a miracle. That doesn't happen. That only happens if God is involved, which is exactly what we come to find out does occur and must occur. And actually for this ultimate fulfillment to be what it was meant to be and said to be, for the, for the baby to be born, to be who he was and to do what he did, it must be a miraculous birth. Just a couple chapters over, maybe in your Bible it's right across the page, in chapter 9, verse 6, Isaiah says this, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. So he continues this, um, this idea of this son. Um, he signals actually two things. For, us, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, which signals two things. It signals one, that the, the, the child would be born. The child was, was human. Uh, he talks about the humanity of the child. But the second, the son is given, indicates deity. It indicates that this son would be divine. It would be given, God's son given, which again clearly points us not to the son of Isaiah, but to the son of God, the ultimate fulfillment in Jesus, the Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed one, the very son of God. Now this, this, uh, this point that Isaiah is making is fundamental, that this son would be both human and divine. This is actually a fundamental doctrine in, in the doctrine of Christ. It is absolutely necessary in order for us to understand the rest of the story. It's not that, that Jesus was 50% man and 50% God that make up 100. No, it was more complex than even that. In fact, Jesus was 100% man and 100% God. And you say, I don't, that equals 200%, doesn't it? I'm not very good at math, right? But that, for our, our mind, our humanity, there's a limit to that, of what makes sense to us. And yet that's exactly what we find in the scriptures. He was fully God and fully man. He was truly God and truly man at the same time. 
And the reason that it matters is because the, the only way that this would work is if that were true. Because only a man, only a man could actually die. God couldn't die. There was no way for, for God to die for us if it were not to become humanity. But, but a human, a human isn't perfect. A human isn't holy. So the death of any human doesn't work. That that's not going to satisfy the wrath of God. It's not going to satisfy the justice of God, the righteousness of God, the standard of God. Man is sinners, uh, a sinner. So, so what else had to be true of this man? He had to be holy. He had to be divine. He had to be without sin in order to be acceptable to God. In order to come to man, to die for men, he had to become a man. God had to become man. Messiah became man. The Messiah, or we could say the God-man. This is what we call the incarnation. The, the, the in the flesh, God became man. God was given bodily form uh, or, or embodied. He was embodied. God put on flesh. We looked at John chapter 1, verse 14 before. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 says, For in him, that's Jesus, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. This son had to be deity. He had to be divine. So the sign was that this, this virgin would conceive and bear a son. And who would that son be? What would he be called? Verse seven, chapter seven, verse 14 goes on. It says, it shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel, which literally means with us, God. Now you say, why would you say it that way? Well, when you look at the word Emmanuel, at the end of the word Emmanuel, you see that the, the suffix or the ending E-L. In the original language, that is the, the word for God. That means God. When you hear the word Elohim or El Shaddai, L-E-L, -E that's God. So with us, God. Or more commonly said, God with us or God is with us. So who is this, this, this sign is that the woman will conceive a son. And what will that son be called? He will be called Emmanuel. Uh, Isaiah is saying that the baby son would be God come to man. Think about that for a moment. God come to man. This is, this has not happened. This is, this is a new thing. Isaiah is saying that the God God is going to come to, to man? The, 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 a baby is going to be born and it is going to be God? Isaiah, back to uh, chapter 9, verse 6, Isaiah says that, that also that, they, that he will be called Wonderful Merciful, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Uh, these are royal titles or, or divine descriptions of who the Messiah would be. They're, they're more character. Uh, they're more attributes of this son. But what are they again? Wonderful counselor. This son would be a wonderful counselor. What is a counselor for? A counselor is to, to give guidance, right? It's to give direction. It's to give wisdom, James, James chapter 1 verse 5 tells us, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Who gives? God gives the wisdom. In the Apostle Paul's great doxology in chapter 11, it says, who has been God's counselor? Right? 
Nobody. God doesn't need a counselor. He is the counselor. Back to Colossians chapter 2, verse 3 says, In whom, this is talking about Jesus, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 tells us that Jesus became to us wisdom from God. That Jesus is wisdom incarnate. Jesus is the wonderful counselor. He is the counselor that you and I so desperately need. He is the one who makes a way for us. Secondly, he is the mighty God. This son is, is, is mighty. He is great. He's powerful and strong and, and able. Now, why would that be such good news to hear? Because in our humanity, we're not. We're not we are not those things. We are not mighty, nor are we God. And so to hear this son, this son who would be given, this son, this Messiah, this coming Savior, who would be what? A mighty God. This term mighty is used throughout the Old Testament to describe God himself in places like Deuteronomy 10 and Isaiah 10. And Isaiah here is indicating again that this son is God. He would be mighty God. He would be deity. Isaiah is saying this child, this son would be God, a mighty God. In him is the fullness of God, as we have said. He is a mighty God. Thirdly, he's the everlasting father, or father of eternity, we could say. When he says he's everlasting, it indicates this, that the son here did not come into being at birth. This is an important distinction uh, for us to make. The baby was born, but the baby did not become a new person at Christmas. In fact, the baby, the son, Jesus himself has always been. He is everlasting. Why is that important to know? Well, because the Bible teaches that very thing. In John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. What's that telling us? That Jesus was at the beginning. Jesus was, was there. Jesus was at the beginning with creation. Jesus was at the beginning when, when God said, let us make man in his own image, in our own image. Colossians chapter 1 says he, talking about Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is everlasting. The Son is the everlasting Father. Now when you hear Father, you might say, well, wait a second. I thought there was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now you're saying that the Son is the everlasting Father. What, what, what are we to make of that? Well, two things. One, it is true that God and the Father, God the Father and God the Son are one, as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are one. One God, three persons. So when Jesus says in John chapter 10, I and the Father are one, he's saying we are one, we are one person, we are one God, three persons, one, one deity. But when Isaiah says that he is Father, everlasting Father, he's not talking about Father in the Trinitarian sense. He's not saying that, that Jesus somehow takes the place of the Father. That's not what he means. 
Rather, he means that, that, that he is a, a, a charitable ruler. He is, he is demonstrating, um, demonstrated by his fatherly concern for his people, as one theologian says. Jesus is portrayed here as a father, but the, the, the image is actually of a ruler, of a king, who's protecting and caring for his people. So when we hear everlasting father, we don't necessarily think of him as, as father, as in father God, but as in acting fatherly, caring and protecting, ruling. And finally, Isaiah says that this son would be called the prince of peace. You remember those words in Luke chapter 2 that the angel said, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. In his little Advent book called The Dawning of Indestructible Joy, John Piper writes this, God's purpose is not to give you peace separate from himself. His purpose is to give you peace by being the most glorious person in your life. Jesus came to be the Prince of Peace. One day there will be peace on earth. But what Jesus came to do is to give peace with those with whom God is pleased, with God's people. We can know God. We can be at peace with God and have the peace of God. Christmas tells us that God has come to us. Jesus is God. Emmanuel, God is with us. Pastor and theologian C.H. Spurgeon once wrote this about, or spoke this about, uh, Emmanuel. He says this, Emmanuel, it is God's wisdom, God with us. Sages look at it and wonder. Angels desire to see it. The plumb line of reason cannot reach halfway into its depths. The eagle wing of science cannot fly so high. And the piercing eye of the vulture of research cannot see it. God with us. It is hell's terror. Satan trembles at the sound of it. His legions fly apace. The black-winged dragon of the pit quails before it. Let him come to you suddenly. Let him come to you suddenly and do you but whisper that word. God with us. And back he falls, confounded and confused. Satan trembles when he hears that name. God with us. It is the laborer's strength. How could he preach the gospel? How could he bend his knee in prayer? How could the missionary go into the foreign lands? How could the martyr stand at the stake? How could the confessor own his master? How could men labor if that one word were taken away? God with us. Tis the sufferer's comfort. Tis the balm of the woe. Tis the alleviation of his misery. Tis the sleep which God gives his beloved. Tis their rest after exertion and toil. And to finish, God with us. Tis eternity's sonnets. Tis heaven's hallelujah. Tis the shout of the glorified. Tis the song of the redeemed. Tis the chorus of angels in the everlasting oratorio of the great orchestra of the sky. God with us. And he is. And this promise of God finds its fulfillment in the Son. 
in Jesus. In fact, the presence of God is a major theme throughout the whole Bible. This idea of God being with us. We looked at Genesis 1 and 2 last week and talked about the garden, how God walked with man, that man and and God dwelt together. And then we saw how that was lost, that relationship, that fellowship was broken. We have just seen how the, the prophets prophesied of God coming to be with man. And we fast forward to the Gospels some 700 years later, and the angel says to Joseph, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, who is Jesus. John 1 tells us that Jesus, in fact, came, came as, as a man. And before ascending to the Father, after his death, in resurrection, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 28, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In John 16, before he left, he said to his disciples, It's good for me to go, because if I go, then the Holy Spirit will come. He will come to be with you. The indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God would be with the believers. And as we conclude the the book of the Bible in the book of Revelation, we read of a time when God will again dwell with man. In chapter 21, we read uh, about uh, what Pastor Wigan called the land of no mores. Remember that part? No more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow. And in the midst of that, we read verse three. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That's the beautiful bookends of the Bible that God once did dwell with man and he will again dwell with man in the same manner. These messianic promises gave hope. They did, but they're not just for the moment. Isaiah's prophecies weren't just for the moment. They were were promises for the long haul. They were promises for the big picture to provide what humanity needed most. You see, the the sign of the sun was ultimately for salvation. Isaiah continues writing in his book, and we get to chapter 53, And we hear Isaiah prophesying, foretelling of this sacrifice of the righteous one for our sins, our iniquities. Listen to it in verse 10 of chapter 53. Yet it was the will of God to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities." What's Isaiah prophesying? What is he promising? He's promising that that it's not just his birth that's yet, yet to come. It is his death. It's his death for us. John Piper has aptly said, Good Friday is the purpose of Christmas. Christmas is not just about the birth of Jesus. It is about the fact that that birth meant that there would be a life, that meant there would be a death on our account. The first book of the New Testament, after many years of silence, we read of what the angel says to Joseph in a dream. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. 
miraculous birth. And she will do what? Bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Advent is not just about a hypothetical hope. It's not about a a seasonal nostalgia of the past. It certainly is about history, but it's about real promises that have been made. It's about real promises that have been fulfilled in Jesus. And these prophecies, these promises actually are, are shadows of what was to come. They're shadows of the real thing. Uh, one pastor offers this illustration. Uh, do you remember being a child? Do you ever remember being a child and separated from your mother in the grocery store or a whatever store? This happened to me multiple times, by the way. This is not my illustration, but it happened to me multiple times. All right. So maybe you start to get scared. I don't know why my parents let me run off, but they did. Um, just kidding. Um, maybe you started to get scared in, in panic. Uh, You don't know which way to go. Maybe you run to the end of the aisle. And just before you start to cry, you see a shadow on the floor at the end of the aisle that looks like your mother. And it makes you really hopeful. But which is better? The hopefulness of seeing the shadow or having your mom step around the corner and it's really her? Advent tells us the shadow has become real. The shadow, the hope, the promise, the prophecy actually has come true. That the promise of the son actually happened. That the birth of this son literally happened. That Jesus came. He replaced the shadow with the real thing. The sign of the son was ultimately for our salvation in the person of Jesus. So don't miss Jesus in the prophecy. Don't miss Jesus in the promise. Don't miss Jesus in this Christmas season. Don't miss your need for him. Don't miss God's promise of him. And don't miss his coming for you. It's not just some random coming. It's not just that the prophecy was fulfilled just to be fulfilled. It was fulfilled for you and for me. It was fulfilled to save us. It wasn't just fulfilled to to fulfill what God had said, but what God had said was said so that we could be saved for his glory. So take heart. Christmas is full of promises. It is. It's it's, it's a time full of promise. Promises ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. So do you know Jesus as Savior? Do you recognize the sign of the Son was for salvation and you know him as Savior? Do you know him? Do you know him this morning as your Savior? If not, today is the day. Today's the day. What a better day. What a better day to to hear the prophecy, to know that he has come, and then to respond in faith. To say, I see this Savior who I need. I see this one who paid, came to pay for my sin and did. And our response is to repent and believe. Believe in him today. And not only will you know the joy of Christmas, but you'll know the joy of Christ himself. Oh, we pray that you would. Would you pray with me now? Father, we do give thanks 
with the hope that we find in Jesus. The joy of the, the promises fulfilled. And this morning as we consider again uh, that great prophecy of the sign of the son who was called Emmanuel. Help us to rejoice today that that son has come, that God has been with us, and God, we look forward to the day when you'll be with us again in a, in a place with, where righteousness dwells. Until then, God, may you give us faith. Would you give us strength? Father, for those who have yet to come, we pray that you would draw them to yourself this morning to see this son that they need. Believe on him by faith. We pray for that now. In the name of Jesus, amen.